be a kind of like genre osmosis mm -hmm. that happens when you work in multiple genres, right? right? So elements of one genre will make its way, will trickle into sure. another genre. Welcome to the Lifelines podcast brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Today, we bring you Wendy Chin Tanner, poet, novelist, and sociologist. She writes on the topics of race, identity, and culture. Born and raised in New York City, she was educated at Cambridge University in England and now lives in Portland, Oregon. Actually, I live in Rhinebeck, New York now. Sorry. <laughs> okay, that's all right. I've got it corrected. We can leave that. Yeah. She has authored three books, including one finalist for the Oregon Book Award. Wendy is a founding editor at Kin Poetry Journal, poetry editor at The Nervous Breakdown, and co-founder at A Wave Blue World. Her poems appear in the Mays Anthology of Oxford and Cambridge, among many other publications. Best of all, she is celebrating her birthday with us today. Happy, happy birthday. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We are delighted to have you here. We've been trying to get you here for a number of weeks, but now we've got it done. And I was uh, lucky enough to hear you read at the Pen Parentis Salon, and I was so enamored with your beautiful writing. Um, so I was so happy that you said yes to Thank being on the so show. Much. Of course I would say yes to being on the show. So how long have you been in Rhinebeck since I thought you were in Oregon? Yeah. Um, is this a recent move? Relatively. Um, we've been there about two years now, just about two years. Yeah. Um, we were in Oregon for five years. I'm originally from New York, so, you know, I'm part of that sandwich generation of having young children and aging parents. Oh. I'm an only child, so, you know, you... You can right, right. figure out that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a lot uh -huh. of pressure. Mm, yeah, yeah. So my dad's eighty-two. My mom's seventy-four. So, yeah. Unlike Oregon, which I think uh, somebody once called the place where young people go to retire. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the lifestyle was pretty great in Portland, I'm yeah. not going to lie. And um, my husband and I also have an independent publishing company for graphic novels. So Portland is like the national capital of uh, indie comics so that was actually pretty great to have that sort of community but um is that something to come back. uh indie comics tell us a little bit about that i find that interesting wow uh, i don't know much about indie comics actually do they call them zines still or is that a separate category it is somewhat a separate category zines are kind of like uh guerrilla comics if you will and and they're more sort of you know handmade and um the work that we do is more graphic novels so you you know, we're going into the book trade oh, more. I see. Yeah, I see. yeah. Okay. So we're more interested in doing trade paperbacks and uh -huh. things like that. So yeah. Um, yeah. So my role in the company is to uh, curate um, hybrid genre work. So I'm putting together people from the literary world with artists from the comics world. I love and say that. the name of the company. A Wave Blue World. A Wave, Wave Blue. Blue World. Yeah, so it's a play on the old yes. I love that. I love that idea. And tell us about whether what kind of books do you think lend themselves well to graphic novels? Um, in terms of Is the there transla translation into Right. Do you novels? feel that right. just about can we pretty much take any work and turn it into a graphic novel? Or what are the sort of the criteria that you think make for better 
uh, graphic novels. Well, and I'm assuming that some are just originally written as graphic oh, novels. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority are originally they written are. for graphic yeah. novels okay. because it's really, you know, as a, as a medium, it's um, really very much about sequential storytelling. So the thing that um, interests me so much about graphic novels is that, you know, you guide the eye from panel to panel. Right. And so when you write for them, um, there needs to be an understanding of those conventions of craft that are highly specific to that genre. Got it. Yeah. So, you know, we think much more about negative space. We think much more mm-hmm. about um, how the page works, you know, as, as a fluid entity. You know, it's right. not just about text at all. Wow, so, that's um, interesting. I love that. Yeah. Fascinating. It's but a, a little bit like the principles of magazine layout, but maybe in its own niche. Precisely, precisely. And also I think there might be a relationship to animation to some degree also. Do you have a particular niche or a particular you know, kind of graphic novel that you're doing at Wave New World? A, a, bla- a Wave Blue World. Um, yeah, so... Uh, our, our work is very um, progressive, certainly. It's um, very much oriented towards, um, you know, giving, giving a seat at the table to a multiplicity of voices, you know. And uh, it's not about representation. It's about passing the mic because the work is already there. So, you know, we make a point of... Um, Recruiting creators who are very diverse, women, people of color, um, LGBT, all of that. And uh, certainly the work that we like to publish is very much story-based. So, um, you know, and and work that is not necessarily in the sort of uh, usual genres of superhero or or anything like that. That's the first thing I would think of. I'm not really immersed in graphic novels. I'm much more used to print and I haven't. Yeah, grown a lot. So um, the first thing I would think of would be superheroes right. or romance or right. the I kinds of I, things I that we I, used to call comic books. But then we also have Persepolis and we also have Mouse. I, I saw Persepolis. Have, yeah. I thought that was a. I don't know if you saw. There was a film also, which I thought was lovely. And um, I saw another one that was based on the same ideal of um, a, a third world country, right. a boy's experience in a third world country. Was, right turned into a graphic novel and it was beautifully done right um so that's i've seen a few i've seen a few but i do find the whole thing very interesting because it's such a different way to tell a story absolutely any work that is uh i think highly imagistic any work that is extremely layered and perhaps much much the same way that poetry is layered sure it lends itself to adaptation like for example at the moment we're talking about adapting some work of norman mailers really yeah that's yeah so you know we're kind of which one is it well i i can't quite I'd say yeah, yeah because you yeah. know we're we're still kind of considering right work in the archive mm-hmm. but yeah and so let last question on this because I'm fascinated is how does it work then you you obviously get the the text in first and then you have to match it with an illustrator that you think will be able to bring it to life that that's sense? that's one way to do it um, but sometimes there's also more of a collaborative process too okay. between artist and writer in fact um, in the work that I myself am curious Creating, 
putting together uh, women poets with women uh, comic book artists. Oh, interesting. Um, I really want for a very close collaboration to happen. Right. Um, yeah. So that because you know something that we've seen a lot of, something that we've been seeing for centuries, really. You know, starting with Blake, is the illustrated poem. Right. That's not what we want to do. I, I don't want to do an illustrated poem. I want to do sequential art. Got it. So it is. It is a. It will be a poem rendered as you know a panel by it's like a fluid it's like a fluid form in essence like like which i guess makes sense storyboarding comes before filmmaking that's exactly right so it's it's very similar to storyboarding yes very good well i love that it was a nice little bonus that we got from you there (laughs) thank you yeah i mean i was familiar with your poetry and your poetry collections and i wouldn't i i I guess i knew that you had done graphic novels Right. Uh, co-authored, yeah. I think. Yeah, so my husband and I co-authored a graphic novel uh, some years ago, but we founded this company in 2005, and I've mostly been, you know, on the back end doing more editing work and, you know, focusing more on my literary career, but this year we've gotten to a point of, um, yeah, we had to make a decision between uh, downsizing or growing, so we decided to grow. Great. And part of that involved my stepping into a more active, overt role as co-publisher and Got curator. It. So, Got it. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Congratulations Thank to you. you. That's a good run there since 2005, and then yeah. to grow bigger. It's wonderful. Okay. Well, let's shift gears. Let's start talking about some poetry, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> That suits me just fine. What would you would you like to start, Diane? Well, I mean, we have this book here. Anyone will tell you. I'm just going to hold it up for the video part. Um, and I found it really unlike other poetry that I've read, very much in its own. Um, tell me about how you came to write it. Mm. Um, so the majority of the poems in this book were actually written in the uh first year of my younger daughter's life, um, Lucy, and um, she was a marsupial baby, which, you know, means she needed to be in the baby carrier at all times to sleep (laughs) and to not scream her head off. So I would spend hours and hours a day just, you know, pacing the halls of my house with Lucy in the baby carrier. And as I be, I've actually always found um, the postpartum period to be a very sort of um, uh, psychotropically um, <laughs> generative time creatively. Very you know, trippy. the sort of, yeah, yeah that, comes through. that definitely comes through. The trippiness? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, and, and, and the, and the um, inspiration, I think, to, sure. to see the world in the way that you've portrayed it in your words. I, I can definitely sense that. Yeah. Yeah, but um, so as as I was walking the halls with her and I started to, you know, kind of generate uh, poems and hear the music of the words again, the only thing I had to write with was my iPhone. (laughs) And uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to write on your iPhone, but, you know, I used the Notes app. Sure. And, um, you know, I only had one hand, and so it's really hard to do any capitalizations or mm-hmm. punctuation or sure. anything like that. So after a while, I just stopped doing that. And there was something about just the tiny screen and the rhythm of that bounce walking that lent itself to these very short lines. So I developed this new form hmm. um, that I think of as three by threes, but they're really trisyllabic tercets. Got it. So there are three lines per stanza, three syllables per line. And so most of the poems in this book are written in that form, um, which becomes very fluid because of the um, excising of 
punctuation and capitalization. And it really, there's a reliance on the cadence of the English language and also the sort of, you know, cadence of the kinetic movement of the walking and having an infant on you. And so I, I hope that kind of like goes into the interpretation of that form. There's also, um, the poems were also designed with a very fluid meaning. You know, there's almost like a choose your own meaning, right. meaning right. interpretive quality right. Right. to some of the lines, which was intentional. Um, other poems are written in blank verse couplets. So, you know, this book is really an exploration of form. Um, whereas my first book, Turn, was more narrative lyrical verse. So I kind of departed right. from that. Um, and and while, and while we're on the subject of sort of structuring, I, I loved how visually some of these poems were laid out. How does that decision get made? Because, I mean, I saw, like, almost shapes. I know one I... I I'm sure it wasn't meant to be, but it made me think of a bonsai tree. But I don't know. There, there were these images that were formed with the words, and I love that presentation. How did you? How does that happen? How do you decide that? Oh, does yes. the illustrator? You did decide yes, that. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely decide that. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, part of that um, decision around visual storytelling um, on the page in terms of my poetry has been influenced by my work in graphic I was going to say, there yeah. must be a link, right? You're, you're visually inspired as well as, you know, literally. You, you, you get words and you're giving them... I, I feel like you make them walk, you, you personify them in another way, not mm-hmm. just with their meanings, but also with the way you want to present them on the page, which I think is really uh, interesting and beautiful, actually. Oh, cool. Thank you. So nicely Thank done. Nice you. Notice that, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's maybe a kind of like genre osmosis mm-hmm. that happens when you work in multiple genres, right? right? So elements of one genre will make its way, will trickle into sure. another genre. So yeah, I mean, I think I definitely have grown an awareness, an increasing awareness of um, the, the page itself and sure. using the page as an other form of communication, you know, not just in terms of the text, but in terms of, um, precisely how the information of the text is conveyed to the reader. Right. You know, so I can slow you down sure. by, by you know, creating relationships. Exactly. I agree. I agree. And when you look at the page as a whole, that can also give you another piece of information. Right. Um, go ahead. You're a trained sociologist, but you talk like someone who has been through uh, an MFA program somewhere. Oh. How did you make that transition from? you know, a research-based science into a visual and creative field? Mm. Well, I mean, poetry was, poetry and creative writing was definitely my plan A. Um, My BA and MA at Cambridge were in English literature. And, um, you know, my plan A was to be a writer. You know, I felt compelled from a very young age to write. And, you know, that was always going to be what I was going to do, although I I did definitely have an ongoing interest, a parallel interest, perhaps, in, um, you know, history and politics and the social sciences. That's that's also not new for me. I was captain of the debate team in high school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, so that was, you know, another side to me. My parents, you know, would have been thrilled had I gone to law school or had I gone into, you know, a service and political office or something like that. But, you know, that's that certainly wasn't for me, but so um, with after my BA and MA at Cambridge, I had an early start in the business, in the literary business, and I fell flat on my face <laughs> real fast. Most of us do in the beginning. It's okay. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I, I failed yeah. big and I failed hard. Um, I 
got an agent right away um, after publishing in the Oxford and Cambridge Maze Anthology, which is a journal uh, from which many London agents will headhunt. Like, that's where Zadie Smith got her start, for example. She was a year or two ahead of me in college. And, um, you know, I did what you're never supposed to do. And I went with the first guy who asked. Like, literally. I went with the first guy who asked. So never do that in any way, shape, or form, right? Um, I didn't really have the kind of mentorship um, to ask myself the right questions like is this a good fit you know stuff like that I was just so thrilled to be asked and I thought this is my golden opportunity I treated him like he was like my professor or something and I you know I just initially anyway said said yes 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 to to anything that he wanted which you know certainly wasn't poetry since poetry makes no money as we all know right Um, You know, he asked if I had a novel in me. I was not writing fiction at the time. Then we decided that I would try my hand at screenplays. I had done a lot of student theater at Cambridge. I had also done a lot of, uh, um, you know, student films, actually, and also had worked in the summers in New York as a production assistant in films, thinking that I might go into the industry in some capacity. So that was available to me. I wrote a screenplay, which he deemed unsellable because it had Asian leads and it was an Asian American story. Wow. What year was this? 1999. Interesting. Yeah. So he said, you know, what is this? I can't I can't sell this. I cannot green light this film. We, you know, you need to go back to the drawing board or make serious changes. And wow, I that said, well, was no. such a slap in the face, really. I mean, sure was. But yeah. at that time, it, you know, it, it, in it, that it, context, probably something that you felt had more weight than you might feel in a more encouraging environment like today with crazy rich agents. Absolutely. The, I mean, the, the, the sort of narrative plenitude that the box office success of that kind of film affords opens up a whole different playing field. Yeah. You know, so, so yeah, that was a real knockback. And um, at that age, I was very young. I was, you know, 22. And I figured, okay, so I guess that means that I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> Um, And I didn't have another screenplay in me, and I didn't have, you know, I was just so discouraged. Sure. And I thought, okay, so, you know, plan B, you know. Um, And I was fortunate enough to have done well enough in my BA to be able to get into the uh, program, uh, a graduate program at Cambridge, but I changed departments. I did not go back to the English department because I was so ashamed of myself for this failure that I didn't want to go back there with my tail between my legs. So I, (laughs) I went, yeah, I mean, this is how, you know, young women think. So I went to the sociology department and spent 10 years there, not writing a single word creatively. (laughs) It hurts. It hurts. Yeah. Yeah, It hurts because it's true. Because I understand. I mean, from a writing, that compulsion that we talk about, I understand how it feels not to be able to meet it. That's right. And so to live like that is like cutting off an arm. Yeah. But I really want to hold on this for a minute. I'm sure it's not your favorite topic, the the period of time when you came into a bump in the road like that, but I think that for other people to learn from that experience, it's extremely important. I think it will benefit them so much. It certainly does me when someone talks about the things that threw them off and the obstacles that they had to overcome. Yes. And you had, and I think we're going to find our way through this thread to a, a, a lesson or a happier 
resolution of things, but you had these competing tensions on what your parents expected from mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. and what the agent and the marketplace expected That's from right. you. And I just want to spend a minute talking about how you finally emerged uh, self-actualized mm-hmm. against all those forces. What did it feel like and what it took for you to finally emerge? I, I think that the way I emerged was via a kind of like anti-capitalist um, move, you know, because um, after 10 years in academia, I um, started writing again, actually, right after the birth of my first daughter, Maddie. So, you know, in that period of time when I was on maternity leave um, and in that first um, experience of that trippy, trippy space. <laughs> right. Yeah. Breaking boundaries. Yeah. It's, it's easier to say yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And in a new world. Yeah. In fact, I have a poem in my first book called Saying Yes, which is very interesting that you should say that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, I saw that. I did go to that one. <laughs> yeah. it, it, uh, you know, that period of time just kind of popped the cork, I think, on right. my subconscious. Sure. And, um, you know, I felt that compulsion again, and I heard the music, the words again for the first time in 10 years. And so I started writing again without... A direction and without a sense of, um, you know, the capitalist um, idea of expectation of, right. of publishing or monetizing or any of that. And so that was helpful just in terms of like releasing mm-hmm. the, the pent up creative flow. Right. Um, but then after that, you know, I realized that in poetry, um, you don't need an agent. It's, you know, small press publishing. It's very much, you know, DIY. And so I think I developed a a sense of my own, you know, control of my process and my own control of my books. I landed with a press that um, is extremely supportive of women and people of color and LGBT people. Let's make sure I mention the name. Sibling Rivalry Press. My amazing publishers, Brian Borland and Seth Pennington, I've been with them for two books. And I can say without hesitation that in all the years that I've worked with them, I've never had a negative interaction with them. It has always been, you know, my word was the last word. Wonderful. Yeah, which which is amazing for me. But, you know, in poetry, you don't have an agent or you don't have to have an agent anyway. And so, you know, I learned a lot of those skills for myself. And, um, you know, I do all of my own bookings. I navigate all of that on my own. And I think that that afforded me that sort of self-actualization that, that you were asking about. But also the years in academia, I think, you know, go into my work. I sure. don't think that that's lost. That but no, a writer just accumulates all of their um, creative inspiration from all of the experiences. So that makes a lot of sense that you still had. I think, if anything, maybe it just gave you an, a, maybe a more grounded, right? Because your writing is so ethereal in its, in its way yeah. um, that it's nice that you have that you know, foundation of stuff that is so, so, so like academic or grounded. And then you can combine the two in a way. Absolutely. I mean, there are definitely layers to the work that, you know, I feel are very politically charged and that, and that also scaffold off of my thought processes as a sociologist, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, particularly in the world that we're living in today, in the country that we're living in today, I find those skill sets to be um, really useful. Right. You know, just kind of like interrogating ideas about truth and interrogating, you know, all the various underpinnings of um, 
you know, our social world and prejudice and racism and um, sexism and all of those sorts of intersectional isms. Mm -hmm. You know, I I, um, am glad that I have those tools and that training to kind of ground me because I I think I would lose my mind if not. (laughs) Now, without looking at any specific poem, can we talk a little bit about just truth as a concept? What's your perspective on truth as a concept? Because I think it is an important part of your writing. Um, so Absolutely. would you share with us what your, how your perspective on truth has sort of evolved and, and how it, effect, it impacts how you, de- how you share it with us? I mean, if, how about that? Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think that one of my preoccupations that um, you flagged, and I think all writers have their sort of pet issues and, and things that, you know, niggle at them and won't leave them alone, and truth is definitely one of mine. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a family with a lot of dysfunction. I grew up in a family that um, has plenty of secrets and lies, and I grew up in a family that carries with it the legacy of immigration and um, racism and poverty and illness and, um, you know, all of the, uh, the, not all of that baggage is ugly, but much of that baggage is ugly. And so I think that my interrogation of truth um, leads me to be able to unpack how truth is a perspective-based concept and that truth is variable depending on you know, who is doing the looking. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I think most of us might actually, if we're open to it, look at and I think agree with you, right? I mean, the world is only what we see. Oh, even sure. when we try, even I, I, I mean, I for one try my best to see the world my way and say, I know that other people don't see it, mm-hmm. but it's, it's still one thing to try to accept that ideal and then to actually do it, mm-hmm. right? It's, mm-hmm. it's very challenging. Well, yeah, the challenge is when one person's truth and another person's truth are in conflict and one has to find a way to either defend or be overrun in the, in the social arena, in the political arena, in the world. Absolutely. When you are trying to hold on to your truth against these battering other That's right. That's right. So I think another strand of my interest is this sort of uh, negotiation between the self and the other Mm -hmm. and the ability to kind of hold on to yourself and your own positionality while also being able to empathize on multiple levels, you know, not just on the intellectual level, but on an emotional level with another person's truth that may well be in conflict with yours. So that is a skill that I think I actually... Um, learned and developed in sociology. There are skills that are rooted in the idea of cultural relativism, which I I think is really like a form of empathy. So it's a methodology that um, sociologists and social scientists, some anthropologists use also in order to um, approach ideas from other cultures that are in conflict with ours. And to not place labels on them and to not judge them as being false or whatnot, but to really understand the context within their rooted and why they make sense to those people. Right, right. So, and, and you know when we read poetry, the, the reader will interpret what they will. So right. one of the things that briefly, and what I briefly interpreted for a moment, and you may, may or may not have intended it, was that perhaps we can do away with truth. 
in right. a sense, right. right? Like, what's the point of using the word truth? What's the point of saying we have access to the quote-unquote truth when, as you just mentioned, there are all of these conflicts constantly happening because it changes based on who's looking, like you said. So anyway, I, yeah. I'm, no, I just... Well, I did intend that. You did intend that. I've got it. I've got it. That's wonderful. A plus gold star. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Let's talk about your other book. A turn? Yes, yes. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the um, how is it different or the same from the how would you say it it it, com- it compares to this particular work? Yeah. So stylistically, it's different. It's written in um, free verse, narrative lyrical verse. I guess you could also describe it. So it's much less formal. It's much less based in the sort of like experimental form, um, and um, it's a memoir in verse. So Turn was a memoir and verse written in three parts, and each of those parts correspond to different phases of life, mm-hmm. but they also correspond to actually um, Hegel's theory of dialectical materialism. Oh, so here comes the sociology, um, <laughs> and here comes the title, too, Turn. Right. Um, so his theory of revolution is based on the idea of thesis, antithesis, uh, synthesis, And this might seem really kind of out there, but for me, I find it to be a very moving idea when you apply it to the human condition because we all begin in a certain place, we react against it, Mm -hmm. and then we hopefully come to some sort of resolution or synthesis. Mm -hmm. And from there we begin again and we keep evolving in these circular patterns. We keep turning, we can either spiral up or we can spiral right down into the toilet. (laughs) So, you know, this is is a choice that we make Um, at many junctures in our lives and microcosmically, like every day, really, in every interaction, we make, uh, we, we make that choice. And, you know, we are triggered again and again by the same exact things, right? Mm -hmm. We are doomed as a, as a species to repeat. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, that's also what the book is about. It's about returning again and again to these sorts of primal issues that we each face as human beings and, um, being presented with a choice of what do we do with that. Right. I was going to say, maybe it's the endless desire for a resolution. Yes. And, and sometimes you cannot get the resolution. Um, I mean, one of the reviews that you received was about how you very accurately expressed how we as individuals tend to return to things, knowing that we're returning to something that we shouldn't be returning to. <laughs> yeah. But it's almost like we just can't stop ourselves, right? It's almost like we, we, we have that battle with the, the familiar, the patterns in our own lives, and then the patterns of being human, right? Yes. So you get meld those two together. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an idea that emerges in every philosophical tradition that I can think of in the world, right? Like if you think about karma, for example, it's about the return, the constant return to the lessons that we haven't learned yet. So, you know, if you don't learn it, then you come back again and and do the same class, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You get left back. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, yeah. And you can never get away really from the tensions between polar opposites because if you don't have that, then you don't have any material for for a living, sure. then you just have one static energy that isn't really going to last very long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am also really interested in these sorts of polar oppositions. I mean, certainly anyone will tell you is a lot about that. I, I think, you know, about the relationship between opposing ideas or opposing parts of the self, right? They're about the um, relationship between parent and child, past and present, self and other, um, human beings in the planet and the planet and the cosmos, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's very much that idea. 
2019 is kind of the perfect year for you to be practicing your craft, you realize. Medical <laughs> tensions that have right. taken place. Well, right? I was going to say, let's, let's talk a little bit about how the turn... I mean, we know that, obviously, having your child brought you back to your writing. Yeah. But then, what was the turn that took you from those early, fragile, you know, tentative drafts, let's mm-hmm. call them, to... Yes saying, oh, I'm going to reclaim my place as a writer. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So Turn was published in 2014, and um, it took me a really long time to, uh, to actually find a publisher for it because I uh, did not come out of a, an American MFA program. I didn't have a foothold in the industry in that sort of um in in that sort of orthodox way, should we say. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, you know, build a reputation as a writer and build a community uh, from scratch after moving back to the States after 15 years in the UK. So I moved back to the States to Portland, Oregon in 2012. And um, from there was starting from stage one, in a sense. And so, you know, Turn actually, once I compiled that first draft, I revised it 11 billion times. <laughs> Only a uh, yes. What are you? are such a slacker. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Mom, are you here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's sneaky like that. Um, uh, but, you know, I started to send it out. You know, I, I, I think when I first started to send it out, it wasn't for real, you know, like I think I just testing used, the waters. Well, I used um, I used it as a as a kind of deadline for myself right. to get together a draft, you know, right. because there are seasons for um, these sorts of like editorial awards or things like that. They, these first book awards. There are many, many, many that you can find in the back of poets and writers. Sure. And they're seasonal. And so, you know, I used those as a kind of like, okay, so this is an end date for when I'm gonna put put this all together and just get it out. And I will say too that, you know, I went back to a couple of trusted um, teachers from high school. Mm-hmm. Teachers who encouraged me to um, consider writing as a career, who, mm-hmm. who really, you know, kind of birthed that spark in me. Mm-hmm. And I went to them with, you know, these, poorly printed out, you know, poems that were scribbled all over. And I I said, okay, I want to show this to you, and please tell me what you think. And um, one in particular, Beth Bosworth, who I want to shout out, she said, this is a book. Mm. And I said, what? And she (laughs) said... (laughs) She was from New York City High School? She was from uh, St. Anne's School. Just wanted to get shout out to St. Anne's. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and she said, this is a book, and you need to just start sending it out. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. That's and, so great. And she said, you can freak out because, you know, I know you, right? Like, she had, by that point, known, known me since I was a child, so, mm-hmm. you know, about 25 years right. at that point. And she said, you can freak out. That's completely legitimate. Freak out on your way to the post office. Beautiful. That is wonderful. What so, a great vote of confidence. Yeah. I love that. So I did that. I freaked out. 
um, many times on my way to the post office because <laughs> it took between 50 and 75 submissions of churn to find a publisher. Mm-hmm. I say between 50 and 75 because I lost count of how many rejections sure. I got. Sure. Now, I mean, within those rejections, it was actually a finalist multiple times. So mm-hmm. it was like, you know, always a bridesmaid, never a bride kind mm-hmm. of situation for a long time, which was encouraging. That kind of kept me going. Um, but yeah, you so know, tell us about the, the yes. Okay. Tell us about the yes. So <laughs> what from uh, sibling, sibling rivalry? Yes, that's yes. right. Yeah, um, I I sent it. I sent it in and completely forgot about it. Actually, because yeah, that's the way it goes. <laughs> because I sent it in right before our big move oh, back it. from London to uh, the United States and to Portland, Oregon, where. Um, we took on the crazy task of fully renovating a dilapidated house while living in one room of it. Fun. Yeah. So I, I, was, I was being... <laughs> sort of the perfect outpicturing of all the changes that you were going through yeah. in your life at that point. Yeah. Yes. So I was learning to be an amateur contractor. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and um, I had a terrible flip phone at that time. I didn't have a good phone. And when my now publisher called me, I could barely hear him. (laughs) And and he has this very, you know, kind of gentlemanly Southern accent. And I was very confused. I could kind of, I could hear a man's voice. I could hear a Southern accent. I could hear my name. I had very recently... um, submitted like a bunch of raffle tickets to the Ace Hardware in my Portland neighborhood to try to win a grill. And I was really excited about this grill. I never had a grill before because we actually had a backyard in Portland for the first time. So I was like, oh, I'll get a grill. And and so I thought that I had won the grill. I was like, is this about the grill? And he's like, no. And he repeats himself like I'm deaf, which, uh, which I mean, it was apt because I couldn't hear him. So he's like, no, this is Brian Borland from Sibling Rivalry Press. He's like yelling into my crappy flip. <laughs> and so then I cried, of course. It was oh, wonderful. But I did not win a grill. Okay. But I you did. You never won that grill. That's I never bad. got the grill. And I bought like five tickets, which is a lot. But <laughs> And this, I think you got the I got a book contract, though. That's I did good. not get a book. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. The universe mixed up the cues. It's okay. It's all right. But that's a wonderful story. So, so, so wonderful. Um, I only have one more question. Do you have anything? Um, you know, I just want to ask about advice for people who are in this situation and beginning to feel that they've made a wrong turn, they need to go back, they need to reevaluate. What do you suggest to them? How do they hold on to the thread of their truth, if you will, you know? In terms of writing, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, my own hack because I can't speak for anyone else's process or anyone else's uh, isms and mm-hmm. issues, but I can sure. speak for my own. My own hack is to always be working on something new. Mm. You know, so while my, while I'm sending something out, my heart and my brain and my creative generative process is o- already in another story. Interesting. Okay. And so that way, you know, I, I sort of guard myself mm-hmm. from uh, hanging on 
with my ego. Oh, I'm going to use that one. That's a good one. <laughs> That's gold. That's a good one. I love that. Yeah. Because, you know, once it's done, I try to think about letting it go. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. it's, I, I did That's my hard. job. It's hard. I did my job. Now it's somebody else's job to judge it. It's not my job to judge it. Right. Yeah. Right. And do you have anything? Uh, I mean, I have book three in the works, I suppose. Or? Yeah. So I'm actually cheating on poetry Ooh. with uh, fiction. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I do have, um, I have a novel in the works, which I'm currently in. I'm supposed to be on revision lockdown right now, but I'm here with you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we will let you out. Out soon after we celebrate your birthday. Yes, <laughs> yes. You can't stay on lockdown on your birthday. No, that's, that's right. That's a You're big, big today. book. It's a okay. big book. It's historical fiction. Oh, um, I say no more. We have a writer at the Brooklyn Writers Project who is writing historical oh. fiction, and we know the process quite well, right? Yeah, I think that's one of the most challenging forms you can take on. Maybe so. I don't know. It's based on a true story. There you go. Um, Say that word. I, true. <laughs> yeah. And I felt compelled to write it because, uh, you know, it, it, it was a story that would not leave me alone. And it's a personal story. It's the story that's based on my father's experience. Um, the book is called King of the Armadillos, and it's um, set in the 1950s in the Bronx and in the Federal Institution for the Treatment of Leprosy in Carville, Louisiana, Interesting. where my father was a patient for uh, nine years wow. uh, from the 1950s to the early 1960s. And so he actually, after giving me permission and carte blanche to tell this story that was an absolute taboo to you know, expose that he had been a patient there once he was released. But um, you know, now that he's in his 80s and at the time in his 70s, he got to a point of you know, wanting to be free from that taboo and saying, okay, you can write this story and seeing the value in it, because it's really a piece of American history. Mm -hmm. And not only did he kind of, you know, give me that permission, he also went with me back to Carville for the oh. first time wow. two and a half years ago um, to do research. And so we spent a week in the institution, which has now become uh, an archive. So there's a museum there and an archive. And so we were in the archives for a week, and he had a lot of fun giving an interview. Mm. And I think it was, you know, a real moment for him, a, a real kind of full circle moment mm -hmm. for him, of, you know, returning triumphant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly returning with his child and returning with his family, with his grandchildren also, because many of the patients in his uh, in in his cohort were never able to self actualize and were never able to like fully reintegrate into society, which wow. he he has. Right. Um, which is not to say that he doesn't carry some of that experience in, in him. I mean, he was institutionalized. He was, you know, uh, medicalized for and pathologized for nine years. And when we talk about leprosy, which, by the way, sufferers like to call Hansen's disease because leper is a, uh, it's a, it's a pejorative term. Mm -hmm. But we cannot talk about the disease without using that term because that is the historical term for it. Um, you know, it is the very metaphor for stigma, right? right? Like, not only is it heavily stigmatized, but it is the metaphor for stigma. Mm -hmm. So this is something that's, you know, a part of my family history, and I could not leave it alone. You know, I had a, I have a backstage pass to sure, sure, this sure. legacy, you know? Like, without Carville, I would not exist. Exactly. Without this leper colony, this leper colony is is where I'm from, you know? Mm -hmm. So sure. I have I have these deep roots in this that is strange yeah. little Louisiana town. I love it. I so love King it. of the Armadillos, is yeah. that 
sibling rivalry or another press? No, so it currently doesn't have a publisher. Um, it's fiction. Sibling rivalry only does poetry. Oh, yeah, so you know, I'm currently in my revision process for it, and we'll be doing that whole you know, dating process, oh, if right, you will, right. for an agent sure. yet again. But this sure. time, you know, I'm not 22. Right. I'm 43 right. today. Yes. And, you know, I know how the sausage is made and yes. I know what my red flags are. And, you know, I, I understand what I need for a good fit. That's wonderful. So I hope to find that this time. Oh, okay. brilliant. I can't wait brilliant. to read it. Oh, thank you so much. You're okay. Welcome. The only thing I was curious about, and we only have a couple of minutes, but why Cambridge? I, I'm just because yeah. you were New York born. Yeah. I mean, this is how, how do you choose Cambridge? I mean, what, yeah. what, was, the, what was it that drew, drew you there? Well, you know, I'm a bit of a one trick pony. You know, I, I can't do math to save my life. <laughs> yeah, I like stand. I'm with you. Well, I do a yeah. little, sort of. <laughs> Enough to like add up my my checking account. Yeah, I can do that. I can do tips. I can do yeah. But <laughs> but um, you know, I think it was very appealing to me that there was an immediate concentration in your subject of choice, and I was you know very very drawn to this idea of being able to fully immerse in mm-hmm. my topic. So um, that's number one, and number two, I wanted to get away. Wait, wait. So what you're what you're saying is that the the program is made such that you don't have to like here in the U.S. You have to you that's have right. to take math, you have to take science, you have to take like it's not set up that correct. Way. It's immediate specialization. Ooh. Immediate. I wish I would have known that. I would have flown the coop. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I jumped through a lot of extra hoops to be able to go. Um, I took a lot of ex- extra courses, um, college level courses in. English literature from Columbia, you know, I, I went and took a bunch of courses in order to demonstrate to Cambridge that I was worthy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I had to do extra interviews and extra essays and things like that. But I was really very, um, that's awesome. Very intrigued that. by that program. I was very interested in working with a particular professor, Tim Cribb, mm-hmm. shout out to him, mm-hmm. who uh, is a post-colonial specialist. And so I wanted to work with him, and he really became like a second father to me. Wow. So that was an amazing undergraduate experience, and um, yeah, I mean, my world was expanded certainly. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think also just as a woman of color, um, as an American woman woman of color, those first years at Cambridge were a bit of a decompression space for me. Mm-hmm. You know, because I was an American, that was what was seen first. You know, I was an American, and they could not see my class. They could not, you know, obviously there was, you know, racial difference, but first and foremost, I was the American girl. And that allowed me just space to breathe for the first time in my life. And I think that was also very valuable yeah. intellectually as well as personally and socially. Sure. See, I knew there was a good story there. <laughs> All right, wonderful. So that was my last question. Where do people find you on the web? Or where do you invite them to find you out in the world if they want to after this? Yeah, um, I have a website, uh, an author website. Um, If you just Google Wendy Chin Tanner, it will pop right up. It's on Wix, um, Wix site. Yes, and um, also at awayblueworld.com. You can also find my work as a publisher and um, at the Sibling Rivalry Press site. You can find my books. 
or Amazon or Wherever. Powell's or all right, yeah. we'll put links to that in the show notes. Fantastic. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Wonderful. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you so much, Wendy. Now uh, we're gonna cut some birthday cake. Oh my god. We're goodness. gonna cut some birthday cake. And um, let's um we, we like to just ask some bonus questions. Oh, they're sure, just sure. not serious. This is all fun. So I don't know, maybe we'll do a play on birthdays. <laughs> so it's your birthday. Who would you um who would be if you could be your birthday guest of honor. Like if you can have dinner with um, some, invite them to your family home, everybody be there. Who would you invite from the literary world? Oh my gosh. Alive alive or dead, it's up to you, whoever. Alive or dead, wow. Who would be (sighs) the dream guest? Wow. You know, I think one of my um, foundational poets is actually a Latin lyric poet, Catullus. And I think he'd be a real hoot at a dinner party because he was one of these, you know, hard partying guys. Oh. As a, <laughs> all right, the kids are no longer invited to this dinner. <laughs> so I'd like okay. to tell us at my party. I think okay. he'd be the life of the party. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, wonderful. Okay. And do you want to recommend any reads um, to anyone? Maybe the, any favorite books that you like? I think we asked this last time. We said, what what good, what good book? Oh, I know. I'm borrowing from Tim Ferriss. Sorry, Tim. Tim likes to ask his guests, like, if there's a book you can give to people as a gift off and which do you give? Oh, I and don't that. you can't say Catullus now because <laughs> now we know you've already covered him. So yeah, I mean, you know, the book that I keep returning to again and again at the moment is Maggie Smith's *The Good Bones* mm, uh, poetry okay. collection. Yeah, okay. yeah, like that. I think it really speaks to our current moment. All right, I think so. Okay, so with that, we are going to wish you a wonderful birthday. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming and being here with us today. And uh, we will, of course, follow up with you, let you know when you will be live on the air. We are in the middle of season three, ready to launch soon, listeners. So hang in there. Diane and I will keep bringing you more stuff. Until next time. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.